I'm Adrian Sykes. Welcome to Did You Know? A podcast dedicated to telling the stories of the executives of colour who have led the way in the UK music business. Today we're in conversation with Joe Kentish, President of Warner Records UK, one of the leading lights in the UK music business. As with all our guests, we like to ask them why they chose the music industry. Here's what Joe had to say when we asked him. I can't pretend that from a really young age I knew this would be the the industry that I was going to be in and that I'd find a home within it. I didn't even really know it existed as, as, as a possibility or a reality. I didn't know anything about it. But I think what I found in the music industry was something that I was passionate about that had always been like the biggest part of my social life and and, and almost you know like a, a hobby passion sort of thing my personality type allied with my 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 passion for music meant that it was it was something I could stick to and it was something that I was good at and other people told me I was good at and said I could do it and so it was it was a, it was a happy accident of a passion joining with, with with something that I had an aptitude for that meant that I found a home. There's a lot of things I'd like to talk to you about as we go, but first of all, tell me about the young Joe Kentish and the music that you grew up listening to and the things that fueled your imagination. So I, I grew up in West London. My dad's Jamaican, my mum's English. We had lots of different types of music, sort of come, lots of different type of music from them and lots of different type of um, music um, as I was growing up in the environment I was in. So I got passionate about, I had phases in almost every type of music. My dad played lots of reggae, lots of soul music he was really into, lots of instrumental soul, um, music as well. So he was really into like Augustus Pablo and, and Jimmy Smith and stuff like that. My mum's family were quite musical, but more in the sort of more traditional English. And there was like folk music and lots of like protest songs and six, stuff from the 60s and 70s. And I had phases in, in, in everything. But I think when I first kind of had my own passions. I, I went through things like Soul to Soul at the UK London club scene. Jungle was massive for me. UK Garage was massive for me. Hardcore was massive for me. And New York rap was absolutely huge for me. So those were those were, those were when I got my own passions. I'm really interested in the area of protest songs because some people may know, but many won't, that the Kentish name is synonymous in the great history, the great black history of the UK. And you have a shared history with our first guest, Darker Beast. So it would be really good if you wouldn't mind kind of explaining more about that. I guess that just to share this, to talk about the shared history with Darker, my dad was one of the uh, Mangrove Nine who a lot of people will know more about now than they might have a few years ago, but it was uh, a group of people who were wrongly accused of rioting as they were trying to um, protect sort of community rights at a particular restaurant in Labrick Grove. And my dad was really heavily into sort of social justice and politics, especially like locally in the area, lots of youth training schemes and things like that. He was a real father figure to a lot of young wayward youth in particular in, in, in the area. Um, and my mum um, met him through a lot of social justice work that she was doing uh, in London at the time. 
as well. So I grew up in an environment that was heavily political. Politics was talked about all the time. People um, questioned, sort of received wisdom. They questioned um, the government. They questioned why things had to be like that. So that was just the natural sort of vernacular I, I grew up with. And how did that shape your personality going forward, particularly through teenage years into adult life? One thing there always was, was there were books and there was learning and there was education. We didn't go to fancy schools or anything like that. But intellectually, I think there was a sort of precociousness maybe that that maybe some of our peers didn't have. Like just talking about politics and reading books was always very natural. And I think that what that did for me... I didn't maybe notice it at the time, but it meant that I wasn't intimidated by conversations or environments that maybe other people were. I was used to um, having a voice and talking about stuff and articulating that and, and knew that to question the positions maybe sometimes that I found myself in coming from where I was or being the colour that I was. Clearly, Darkus is one of our great black executives, as you are as well now. I mean, have you guys ever sat across the table and discussed past histories and shared stories? It's strange because stories about the Mangrove Line and, and, and the other things that my dad did in, in the area and stuff like that, I've, I've grown up with. But when you've grown up with stuff like that, it can often become part of the wallpaper. Like, it's it's present in your life and it's part of your life, but you just don't kind of question it or even see it anymore. You know, it's stuff your dad talks about. It doesn't have the significance that maybe it should do. So when it came to Darkest, we hadn't talked about it. And I don't even think we'd made the connection. Um, but I went home and started talking to my dad about work. And I said, oh, it's great. You know, Ireland have got their first black president. You know, this guy called Darkest Bees. And my dad went, yeah, 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 I know Darkest. Yeah, he's Darkest's son, isn't he? I went, so you know him? And he was like, yeah, you like... You saw him when you were a kid and blah, blah, blah. And I just suddenly went, of course, like Dark as Hal, <laughs> Dark as B, Dark as one of Magrave 9, you were one of the Magrave 9. Of course there's this connection. So I, I called Darkus and was like, yo, you know that our dad's no chump in the Magrave 9? And he was like, hang on, hang on, hang on. And he spoke to his dad. And then we got back and we were like, holy hell. Like it started a deeper connection between the two of us. And obviously I've always like looked up to him, but... I guess like a lot of people, I hadn't really seen the importance of forming networks and connections with people who can help you and, and mentor you and, and maybe share knowledge and experience. I hadn't really done that. I was working in a silo in lots of ways. And it, it started a sort of deeper conversation between the two of us. Now I think we, we're aware of the significance and the kind of possibly the responsibilities that come with that legacy. So once you found that point of being confident, you're educated, you're politicised, you know you want to be in the music business, what was Joe Kentis' next move? I never had a realisation that I wanted to be in the music business in that way. I was someone who maybe thought he would do something, just wasn't sure what it was. And, and, and growing up, I never really found a passion or a, a direction that felt right. I was someone who would just always get myself into like scrapes and, and, and find mischief wherever it was. And it was kind of like I was getting to that sort of dangerous age, 19, 20, 21, 22, where you just kind of all over the shop. And I was at a place where I really didn't know what to do and, and, and sort of gave myself a little bit of a scare by some stuff I got involved with. And, and just at that time, a friend of mine was starting this like garage label. And um, he said, oh, you should just, you should just help us. 
with that. I was clubbing and going around to all that type of music. That was that was what I was listening to. So it, it felt natural for me on that level. And then that turned into a bit more of an established label. I was doing that for like two or three years with 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 him and another friend of ours. And I started to get to know a few A&R people. And as as that label looked like it was going to wind up, we didn't really know what we were doing. We had some fun for a few years, but but it looked like the label wasn't going to be long a long-term success. I thought, right, what, that was fun. What am I going to do now sort of thing? And just as I was thinking that, another A&R, another label, a guy called Jamie Nelson just said, do you want, a, do you want an A&R job? And I never thought about it in that way. Like I'd never looked at some of these A&R people that I was getting to know, people like Jonathan Dickens, Darkus. Miles Leonard, Jamie Nelson. I never looked at that as something that I could do. They were just people with proper jobs who went into big proper buildings and you knew what they were doing. And I was a guy who's having fun and putting out some records that I liked, going to Iron Apple and, you know, <laughs> Bagley's and just having a good time. <laughs> I'd never seen it as a career, really. And I, it just always was alien to me. I never made the connection. Um, but Jamie said, do you want to be an a and And I just went, I remember my response was, what, what do A&R people do? What's that? He was like, well, it's kind of what you've been doing. And I was like, at that point, I had so little going on and I was so like, what the hell am I going to do? I, honestly, he could have offered me almost anything and I'd have done it. And I thought, I'll give it a go. I just thought, I'll just blag this. I'll, I'll somehow, I'll work it out. It won't last for long, but it will get me through another <laughs> year or two. And I remember turning up for like my first, day and like you know they give you like the, the the sort of id card that gets you in the building so i went in this building and it was like the big old emi building i got the, the plastic card and there was the guy on the front desk and i thought for once i don't have to go to the guy in the front desk and tell him i'm here to see blah 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 and wait i just kind of walked in put the plastic thing down it opened i thought right no one's tapped me on the shoulder yet this is like i was like keep it cool joe just keep, keep going like, you know what you're doing yeah. And I just remember think I had this thing like, I'm never going to let them get me out of this place. Like, I'm just, that's it. I've got to keep this card. I've got to keep being let into this place. Like, I kind of had a sense that I had a chance of doing something. And yeah, and I just I just took it and, and, and ran with it. In the last couple of years, I've had young people like ask me about how did I get into stuff? So I've had to think about my own process because I've never really thought about it in terms of that. Looking back, I think... It was a hustle for me for so long. Like I was in a space that I didn't think I belonged in. I, I was in a space that I thought like there'd been a mistake, that they thought I knew something that I didn't know. And that was maybe a self-confidence thing, maybe not seeing other people like me around, that many other people like me around. And so I would just had my head down, observing what other people did, you know, and doing anything to make myself useful. And, and, and that was my attitude for a while. I wasn't thinking about career. I was thinking about staying in the building. The label that you had was called Middle Row. What did you take from your time at Middle Row into your first A&R gig in that EMI building? Because we didn't know what we were doing, we didn't know what not to do. So we just kind of did everything. Like you know, like there was a compilation album that you wanted to be on. So I'd just like look at the CD and got the number off the bottom for a universal catalogue and I'd just call them and say like, I want, can we get our, our stuff on this? And then somehow like sometimes you get through to someone or you just kind of, it was very like A to B. It was like monkey see, monkey do. Do you know what I mean? It was like, 
everything was just practical. I didn't know how to do anything and I didn't know what not to... Now I cringe at some of the things I used to do. But it was just very, like, do everything. You know, try and get the artist gigs, try and come up with concepts to get stuff on TV, try and, like, just anything to, like, help sell the records. So I took that attitude definitely into into my my job. Just a very entrepreneurial, do-everything-yourself attitude. And I spoke to Jamie Nelson as to why he gave me a job, because I still don't quite get it, what he saw. And he's like, oh, it was great. You used to do everything. He said, I would have an act, and then you would go down and see the rehearsals. You'd say if the dancing wasn't good enough, you'd say... This, the lights weren't good enough. He'd stand by the DJ and make sure he was like scratching the records right. And you would do. And if you've ever seen me dance, you know how mad that is that I would be like commenting on other people dancing, right? I've never had the pleasure yet. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think that's the energy I brought into to, from what I did into that. And then the other thing was maybe that we had an office and we had two studios. And I would just love and a lounge, and I would just love being in the lounge and the studio when the artists would finish and they'd have something to play and just like, like I want to say something cooler than vibing, but just chatting to them about the music and, and just being super excited by it. And I was excited about being around them, do you know what I mean? Because they were the people who actually made the music and DJed and, and, and MC'd and stuff like that. So I was just excited about them. I was really excited about what they were doing, which meant that I had a real connection with them as people, because I'm quite an emotional person. If I see something that makes me happy, I'm like jumping around the room. If I see something that makes me sad, I'll go that way. Do you know what I mean? Those relationships with artists and creative people, I think is is maybe my, not necessarily what I learned, but what got developed there that I think has been a big part of, of, of any career success that I've had. When you've got your pass and you're in the building and you're hustling, what was the tipping point where you thought, this is something that I can really be a part of? Was there a moment that flipped the script for you? It might sound weird, but it's not until quite recently that I thought, oh, yeah, this is something that I do. I had my head down so much and felt like such a person who turned up in a place by accident. There wasn't necessarily a moment until quite recently where it's like, yeah, yeah, I kind of definitely deserve to be in the room. And I think that's helped my career a bit because I've never got gassed on my own success. I'm like a real there, but for the grace of God. And so incrementally, I've always thought like, if I have a little bit of success, right, that's me for a year or two. They can't get rid of me for a year or two now. And then I have another, then it would be like a number one. And I'll be like, that's got to be good for two years. That's almost how I thought of it. Do you know what I mean? Like it's taken me a while to get out of that mindset. I never felt anything was owed to me. I've always felt it was a bit of an accident. But I I had some success with, with, with an artist called Just Jack. And I thought, yeah, that's I thought, right, I'm here for a bit more. And then I had some success with 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 an artist called Pixie Lot. We had a lot of success. And that was like, you know, for a minute that was, you know, like sold a million albums and number one records. But even that was like, all right, that's another few years in the bag, you know. So I don't know that there was a moment, but fairly recently I've definitely felt like this is probably what I'm going to do for a while now. How important was it or would it have been for you to have a reflection of yourself looking back as someone that you could talk to and were there any figures in and around that time that were influential that you could call on for advice and experience yeah I mean obviously like Jamie was great because he he saw something in me that I didn't see in myself he taught me how to do the job taught me how to make records 
and, and, and he spent time with me doing that. So I feel like in some ways I had an advantage over a lot of people. Once you found someone, I knew how to like actually finish 40 minutes of music and give it to a marketing person, which is, you know, I could, I could do all the technical stuff. And that was really, I looked around me and a lot of people I thought, oh, I'm now really, I'm like, I can do that bit, which is actually a forgotten almost part of like, just technically being able to deliver records for the schedule. So that was, that was, that, that was great. I saw people, but in a way, I kind of thought they've got the secret and I don't, so I better like work it out on my own a little bit. Do you know what I mean? But obviously, I saw you know, Darkus was always like someone who I guess was a, was a support from me, but from afar, I more just watched it. I didn't have the wasn't the type of person, or I didn't really know about you know seeking out mentors. I didn't. That's something that I've only actually done in the last like maybe three or four years, like I had a coach to come and talk to me about stuff and it and, and it made me unpick my own career. And and she was like, listen, you go and talk to people. <laughs> like, you know, and, and I found it amazing. I just went and like called the people who I thought were wicked, who over the years I've seen them put out a bit of music and, and I just went and had chats with them and it was really, it was it was inspirational and, 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 and was great. But I guess I've built up friendships, but I've only really built those friendships up quite recently. I think we all kind of maybe a little bit worked on our own silos because there wasn't enough of us. I think actually we probably like thought that like they were almost in some ways like a threat to us. Like I'm I'm the black guy at Mercury. <laughs> like so I need to fight for my position and you're the black guy over there. And there's only spots for a few of us. So we need to like have our stuff together. And like I think I think there was maybe a little bit of that going on. That's really interesting. I've never heard that argument phrased in that way because I've heard a lot of the other guys go, we'd really like to have been able to seek out or find other people or we really wanted to have that reflection coming back. So it's really it's really interesting to hear your thought patterns on that. It felt like we were sort of like the kind of in competition with each other. Do you know what I mean? Like, And, and that wasn't anything explicit. But there's only a few of us, do you know what I mean? And 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 also with an industry that's always trying to like, there's an implication like you do the black music. Not I didn't have that as much as other people, but like that there was only a certain number of spots, maybe in a way. And but recently, like we've we've come together a bit more, and 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 it's been really nice to do that. And I noticed that young people are on it now. Like they're they're so much better than we are. They're like you, tell me how you do it. Give me 30 minutes for coffee. Like, they, they're more on it, and it's really good and, and, and smart and much more sort of strategic than my slightly haphazard way of going about it. Did you feel that same kind of competition with your white counterparts? To an extent, I found, found it everywhere. You've got to remember, if you're, like, in a space where you don't necessarily feel like you belong for a number of reasons, you kind of head down, get on with it, justify your existence almost to everyone. So once you've had your journey at Mercury, where do you go from there? So I was at Universal for like six or seven years or so. Um, and then I went to Warners. I'd kind of like had chats with, with with various people, with Miles had been trying to get me over for a while. I'd had chats with Matt, but I was kind of, I was kind of set in a way and it just felt like the right thing. There were some changes happening at Mercury Center Virginia Mine. There were some changes and funnily enough, Glyn had come over. So he was kind of there. So I thought, well, 
he, he's like got my spot now and Glim was probably firing with some like hits or something like he does so I'm like right I better go find another spot for myself yeah it just felt like a really good time and and Phil Christie had just been made um president of Warners and he was an old friend of mine and I just saw I've always wanted a little bit of blue water around me just in case in terms of the types of records I want to do I want to do like really big records with big songs on them that would would hit the sort of mainstream market and I didn't think that they had anyone over there who could do that the way I could so whereas Virginia Minor kind of felt like other people there was a bit more competition so it felt like a good opportunity to go and sort of stake my claim somewhere new so I went over there. And success at Warners has been phenomenal for you. Talk about the incredible success you've had there because you've been responsible for one of the biggest artists in the world over the past four or five years, which is, you know, I know is a source of immense pride, not only to yourself, but to a lot of us. I guess the Warners thing felt good for a while. I felt like I had gained so much experience that I went to a place where... It, it could really tell and it was really appreciated in a new way and where they were kind of reliant on me to do, to put in the sort of, use the expertise I'd built up over the last decade or so um, to help a label grow. And we had a real shared purpose of like, here's this little label that hasn't really existed before. We need to turn it into something. So there was a few goals that was like, we need a massive artist. The whole Warner's group didn't have a big female artist. So that was an express thing from Len Blavatnik to Max and like, we need one. And um, and then it was, there's no black music on this label. You know, it was, it was an alternative rock, really cool alternative space, but there wasn't, there wasn't like, so there was a few things we had to start doing at Warner's and I'd like to think we kind of are always trying to progress, but we've, we've established ourselves in a few spaces where we felt like we needed to in a relatively short amount of time. So there's a lot of pride, but obviously the, the doer thing was, was, was absolutely incredible and was was the stars aligning, I think. Um, certainly, I don't know that I'd have been able to do the work I did on that album at any point previous. So for me, professionally, it was a culmination of a lot, but then you, you need to meet the right artist with the right manager and the right, you know, the right environment um, creatively, and it all kind of came together. I think it'd be really good for you to explain a about the criteria that A&R guys look for when signing new artists. Is it purely about raw talent or are there other defining factors that you're looking for when you're looking to bring them to the label? I always have a problem when I kind of hear people in similar A&R positions kind of like talk about it like they, they kind of knew this or knew that or this is what you've got to look for this is what you've got to like is some sort of science certainly not the way I do my job my job is still kind of a lot of emotion and a lot of feel about what I like and what what moves me so I want to find artists that move me in that way or human beings that I'm like like it was at Middle Road that want to get me out of the office and into the studio and chatting and having having a good time you know and being inspired so I look always at base level is an artist that does that for me because I know now doing these massive mainstream pop projects, what it takes, the the effort, the monumental effort it takes just in terms of getting the music together and up to a standard and how motivated I need to be. Maybe other people can do it without sort of so much energy, but that's what I need. And I know what it takes. So when I'm meeting someone, I'm like, are you someone who could like make me motivated and people around you super motivated 
Because if not, you might be right for someone else. You're just not right for me. So I never worry that much about missing out on big artists when I see them go off and do stuff. Because I'm like, I wasn't necessarily motivated. I don't know if you remember this, but there was one time at the Brits when you was, you was winning everything with Emily Sandé, you and, you and Glyn. I was sitting there absolutely fuming. And Thank you. Guys you. Everything. <laughs> you guys are winning everything. And I'm like, damn them. And, um, and, and you said to me, and you were like, because obviously I, 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 I met Emily with you very, very early. I was like one of the first, if not the first person to see her. And, and, and I said, oh, congratulations, Adrian. I, I didn't mean it. I said it though. I said, congratulations. Well, no, listen, I, I love the honesty now. It's co- now it's coming out. No, no, no. I meant it. Of course I meant it. I meant no, it. I know. I, I, know, like, I, I would have preferred just a couple. But yeah, so, um, so, so I was like, oh, congratulations, blah, blah, blah. Great. Da, da, da. And you were like, oh, mate, you know, you, I did, you know, I did bring it to you. I did figure it out. And, and I said something which I really which was maybe the first time I'd articulated it, but I really meant it. And I always remember that when I see other things working. I said, Adrian, if you'd assigned to me, there's no way you'd have gone on to all this success and made this record. Because I didn't see it. I couldn't, I didn't understand it. But obviously you met Glenn and you guys understood it. So I never felt like I missed out on something because I never felt like that option was never open to me because I couldn't have, I didn't get what you guys were trying to do. Do you know what I mean? So I'm looking for something that, that speaks to me personally when I'm, when I'm looking to, to, for, for something. I want to be moved by it, but there's no magic number of followers, fans, type of voice. There's, there's, there's none of that. It's just something that moves you. I'd just like to say it's heartening to know that you beat me out on the numbers and the awards <laughs> in the end. You, got, you put the three points in the bag, so well done. <laughs> The demands of the job have got to be great. And it would be really good for you, again, to give an overview of what that job entails, because maybe there are people out there that aren't a part of the business that don't know and would love to know what a head of A&R does and what his actual role is. I think as a head of A&R, certainly me, I'm a player manager. So I'm like, I also sign stuff and A&R stuff as well as managing the team of A&R people. So my job is to, to help assemble some really good A&R talent and to support them in being A&R people. Now, some artists and some A&R people need different amounts of help or they need help on different things. Some of them need you to just let them get on with it. (laughs) And some of them need little bits of help with different bits of artists and to offer your experience of doing the job. And because I really, I feel like I had to learn the job. Like I didn't know anything and I really had to learn everything about the job that I feel like I can, I can help a little bit in that process. That's what I do. And then to try and kind of have responsibility for what our roster looks like to make sure it's balanced to make sure we're signed, to, to kind of have an overview of what we're signing and to make sure we've got the right balance of genres and, and the personalities in terms of our artists and, and, and the singles we're picking up and that we're, we're not becoming too um, biased towards one type of music or one type of artist. And I try and do it with as light a touch as possible. Tried like, I've tried to like find really good people and just try and like, you know, be the parent on the sideline cheering them on. And I think that I, I've, I've really been lucky in the people that, that, that we've managed to pull together as part of a team. There's some really smart people. They're way better than I was at their age. That's for damn sure. Your career has been one where you've signed lots of different artists across lots of different genres. Is that something that you've actively cultivated, especially given that you started out as a man who loved his garage? 
where I grew up in West London and Labrock Grove and stuff, like, it's a real mix of everything. Cultures, colours, religions. It's, it's a mix of everything. Class. And I've always had that in my life. At home, I've had that. Lots of influences. So I've had the ability to just dive into anything that moves me. So, like, I, I got expelled from school when I was, like, 14. And my mum sent me to live with this French family that she knew. So I was, Get stay out of trouble. She made everyone speak French to me, so that I just couldn't, didn't hear the English language. <laughs> so, and, but the one thing they had was some Beatles albums. So I just listened to these Beatles albums like nonstop. So still, I can sing you like Sergeant Pepper or Revolver, like word for word. I've had moments of getting into so many different things. So for me, I've never felt restricted by genre for any reason. But it was funny when I first got into the industry. I'd come from Garage, but grime was kicking off at that point. So the Garage that I was really loved and was into was sort of ended as a sort of commercial thing. Um, so I didn't feel like I could keep a job by staying in that scene. And the sort of dubstep grime thing, that was more at East, South, North London thing. So I didn't feel like I was from that scene. So I didn't feel like I, I knew enough people from that scene, but I really got it enough. So I kind of went in going, right, what am I going to do? And Jamie was making lots of pop records. So I was just like, I'm going to really get into this and cultivate that side of my taste. And I did that. But to be honest, if Jamie told me that we were going to make opera records, I would have made opera records right then at that point. Like anything to stay in the building. But I I, I, I got into that. And, and obviously like I had quite a lot of success in that area, which then means that you kind of get more into it and, and that. But I've always wanted to have a broad roster of things and I think now when I look across my roster it's, it's getting to be that more than any point in my life I, I love the stuff that I get to work with and feel like it's maybe a real true reflection of me and now I yeah have, have a roster that's reflective of everything that I want to be a part of. And when you walked in the building on that very first day what was the extent of your ambition? I didn't really have that thing of career like there was no people like me at the top of any company there was like, it felt like a club that I didn't really understand. And and I remember like, when I first started, like no one would sign to me. I couldn't get anything to sign to me. And I'd hang out with these artists. And I know I had a connection with the artists. Like it's one thing I know, like that side of the job of like forming connections with young creative people. I've always kind of been confident that that's the bit that I can do. But no one would sign to me. And then I'd find out afterwards, I'd say to whoever my boss was, Jason Eiley or Paul Adam or Jamie, I'd be like, oh, I can't believe that artist didn't sign to me. Like, I, re- I know that I got on with them. And they went, oh, yeah, that's because the manager is, is brother-in-law with this person. Or that's because... And it just was like this club I wasn't a part of. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> and, and so it was a struggle just to, just to stay in it. So there was no thought beyond that until very recently. And I think that that's the problem of not growing up in certain environments and seeing stuff reflected. Ambition just didn't really feel like something that was realistic. It was just, it was survival. I wasn't feeling strategic about a career, in inverted commas, until relatively recently. Was that because you generally felt that a black person would not be able to attain those kinds of positions of of power once you'd actually got in the building and seen how the makeup of the building was. I don't, don't know that I ever felt like that um, expressly. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think a lot of these ways of thinking about stuff, I think for a lot of us, is, is something that we've thought about more recently. But it was probably residual that I, I, I can't do stuff like that. Like, you know, Glyn said something when he said that he was probably like trying to swerve it for ages and then he saw his son 
and he realised that, you know, he has to kind of step up. It takes a bit of a later realisation and it's a wider problem than just the music industry. I think when you just don't see it around you, you just don't, things aren't real, like, in terms of that sort of attainment and achievement. And it's very, very subtle, which I think is more dangerous and insidious, you know? What you're doing now is you've attained that position. You're now the reflection that people are looking back onto. How important do you think your role is in providing inspiration and ambition to the next generation of people of colour coming through? I think example is the most powerful thing in terms of a, a motivating factor. I think just seeing something exist, see, seeing something exist means that you, 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 it's possible, you know? So I think maybe by, if any successes I've had in my career kind of shows people something exists and they think it's possible for themselves. So I think that's important. Every now and again, I'll get the odd email or text message or something from someone saying, it's good to watch what you're doing, blah, blah, blah. And, and, and that feels really, that feels really good and just reminds you that you kind of, there's a, there's a responsibility and others paved the way that you have responsibility to others who are coming. Do you feel pressure having that responsibility as a role model? To think about responsibility to others can be really hard. First, because it's something you've been thinking about as lucky and then all of a sudden it's like, no, you've achieved something and, and you have a responsibility. Yeah, it puts a different type of pressure on you. And, and, I, and, I, and during the whole Black Lives Matter thing, there was stuff going on about my dad's story and my dad had died the year before. And I was definitely feeling the whole weight of it. Of like, firstly, of like, when your dad's, you know, done amazing stuff and lived a life of sacrifice, sacrificed a lot to help the community in which you still live and people still come up to you on the street and talk about him. And at the funeral, there was just a line of sort of young guys who were like, I used to get in lots of trouble, your dad helped me, blah, 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 blah. So I was living with that. Then there was like a whole load of stuff going on about Mangrove Nine, Steve McQueen. And so, so I had an increased awareness of that. Then the Black Lives Matter stuff happened. I had a lot of time on my own thinking about that as we, as we all did. Being in this role and feeling like a responsibility and having to take a sort of bit more of a, of a leadership position about how to have a positive impact on some of these issues. And, and there was definitely moments in it all where I just thought, I felt like it was a lot. I felt very ill-equipped maybe not ill-equipped but unready for it how do you feel now positive about it i feel that the networks and the conversations that i've had recently in the last couple of years have been tough but have helped round out i guess my approach to my career and to, to maybe life a little bit more you take all of this stuff on and then you just get on with it and you try and you know you do it in your own way um and I think just just by sort of being a positive person, giving time to people, trying to do things in the right way, often that's enough, you know? And what do you think a real reflection of diversity in the music business looks like? That you go into a building and you don't think there is a disconnect between the artists and the consumers of their music and the people running the companies. I think we've got to look like, not necessarily, you know, not exactly cosmetically, but, you know, I think we've got to look like our artists and our audiences to some extent, or much more like our artists and our audiences. I mean, listen, power structures take a long, long time to change, you know, um, and we shouldn't and we shouldn't kid ourselves that, that, that they're going to change quickly. But I definitely feel like the, the economic argument is, 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 is strong. Um, I think there are some really, really smart 
managers out there who demand labels who who get what their artists are about and get their audiences. And there are some there are some really smart artists who, who who will articulate that as well. And I think that you either you adapt or or you get left behind. You mentioned about signing acts and acts that you missed out on and talking to your immediate bosses and going and saying to them, I don't understand why I missed out and realizing that the connections and the reasons why these acts went elsewhere were for things outside of your control and that it was a club that you still haven't got a card for. Have you got the card for that club now? Are you a member? Yeah, but the problem is, Adrian, you know what I'm talking about. There's always another club. <laughs> like, <laughs> So I'm in one club and I'd like to think I've got a reasonable chance of, of, of signing stuff at the moment, given, given my sort of track record. But every time you get into a club, you realise that there's another club. And now there's another club and there certainly is more levels of this than just that, you know. And, and and I think these are these are some of the barriers that people who've been around for a while are still trying to break down. So tell us about those clubs and how you break those barriers down, because that's gotta be the next stepping stone. I had some amazing advice. I literally looked around the business and just thought, who do I want to have conversations with? There's a amazing executive called Big John who you'll know, who now runs Sony uh, Publishing, is a really inspiring character. And I keep, kept hearing Big John's the man, Big John's the man, but I'd never got to meet him. I'd maybe like waved at him across a, across a, a like an awards show or something, but I never got to meet him. So I just like called and was unashamed, said, I want some advice. I've got this job and I, you know, I head of it and I need some advice. And he was wicked. And he, he sat me down and gave me like an hour of his time and just rapped with me about stuff and, 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 and again, very intentional. And he was like, you know, if you want to go into some of these spaces, you've got to make them know that, that that's where you want to be. You've got to let the powers that be know that you want to do that and you're serious about it. And that, and, and I think you have to be intentional about things like that. You have to do the training. You have to learn about it. You have to, you have to put yourself forward for stuff. Um, you have to not be humble and bashful about your ambitions. You have to feel like you des- deserve it and you've earned it. Um, and that was that was really great advice from a really incredible, I know, one of the most foremost black music executives in the world, for sure. So what's your ambition now? You're head of A&R. What's the next chair that you, ideally you want? Is there is there an ambition for you to to rise further up the chain? Yeah, I think one day, if the opportunity presents itself, I'd love to run a label. Um, and if I, if I could do that in the right way, um, at the right time, then that's something that I would love the opportunity to do. I think my, my ambition has always been to like sit in the middle of a label that really reflects the best of sort of diverse UK talent and sounds and also to have an incredible bunch of, of young executives around me. So that's the vision for one day and, and I hope it comes true. What we like to do as we get to the end of the podcast, Joe, is try and help some just Quick fire questions. So who provides you or or has provided you with inspiration? I think I'm really inspired by my peers, by the people I came up with. People like Benny Scars, Jack and Sam, Glyn, Darkus, Bryony, Ed, you know, like the people that I kind of grew up with because because when you see them kind of all start around the same time as you you kind of realize that you can do it as well and the proudest moment in your career to date the grammys 
do as Grammy wins was absolutely like beyond any expectations um, that I thought I could reasonably have to be recognised on that platform. That was probably the proudest things because I'm lucky with that project that I have such a close relationship with the artist that you kind of really see it and you're a part of a record coming together in the way that I'm allowed to be in that project to feel like you genuinely deserve to be there and we're a part of something. Why would you tell someone to choose a career in A&R? Can I widen it to the music industry? I think that what, what I found in the music industry was a home for someone who had a skill set but might have found it hard in sort of more traditional job environments. So I would say to people that, that, that this is the great thing about this industry is you don't have to be the conventional person. You can be entrepreneurial, you can have people skills, you can have enthusiasm, you can have passion for, for scenes and, and musics and cultures and stuff like that. And even if you don't consider yourself someone who would ever have excelled in a traditional sort of business role, this might be a place for you. That's why I'm really grateful for all my chances because I feel like, wow, it could have gone any which way for me, but I found something that I was good at that I didn't necessarily know I would have been. And so I would encourage people that it's a place where where you can find a home if you kind of if if, if you have some of those skills. In the year of activism and protest and the black community around the world finding their voices and being joined by every other community to show outrage. What would Rothwell Kentish have thought about that? I think there would have been a frustration that more hadn't been achieved. He was such a lively, enthusiastic sort of guy that I can't think that he wouldn't have been sort of energised by a lot of it and he'd have known what to do. It's mad for me to even try and put words in my dad's mouth because if you knew him, he was so smart so well read and stuff like that that me putting words into his mouth is a bit is a bit mad but yeah I think that there would have been part of him that would have been energised and known what to do and known how to how, how to act and had ideas about activism because he was at very sort of base level he was an activist he did stuff and finally you said that one of the things you wanted to do was justify your existence in, in the business have you? I'll tell you in like 10-15 years I guess I feel like I've justified the chances I've been given, for sure. And that is as good a place to end it. Joe Kentish, thank you for joining us on the Did You Know podcast. Nice one, Adrian. Thanks for having me on. I'm Adrian Sykes, and thanks for listening to Did You Know the podcast, a downstreet production. Our thanks to Joe Kentish for sharing his stories, and to my partner in crime and true pioneer, Danny D. Thanks also to Sean Springer, our producer Cass Denton, and to Ella Ruby on the socials. Our theme music is composed by Vega Brothers. Honourable mentions to Dave Roberts and Tim Ingham at MBW for their support. You'll soon be able to apply to be mentored by the guest of the Did You Know podcast. Please keep listening for further information. Did You Know is available wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure you subscribe to never miss an episode. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star review. This was Did You Know. Until the next time.